<sighs> so what's the title of this episode going to be? Uh, Damar has had enough of your shit? Uh, <laughs> I'm Cardassia's mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore? Damar says no mar. No mar. <laughs> no mar. No there you go. No mar. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're Starfleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrick. Plain, simple, Garrick. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland, Paul Spataro, and Dr. Bill Robinson. Bloody hell. Goodbye. I'm leaving you for well. Goodbye. Goodbye. Ba 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 ba. I don't even know if that's a song. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast, a Two True Freaks presentation. I am Andrew Leyland, and I am leading an attack on Starfleet headquarters tonight with my cohorts in crime, Doctor Bill Robinson. <laughs> Excellent unmuting, though. They would never have known. Paul Spataro. <laughs> and Dave Pascarella. We surrender. I'm going to award you all mwahaha points for who could do the best mwahaha. <laughs> uh, tonight we're looking at the changing face of evil, which according to the illustrious Wikipedia page, which today wants money... Uh, is the 170th episode of the television series Deep Space Nine. On the edge of defeat. Poor Captain Sisko. The balance of power. We need to buy some time. May be overturned by a single defection on the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It aired on syndicated television on April 28, 1999 and focuses on the events of the Dominion War Saga, a plot arc which figured prominently in this science fiction show. Don't you love Wikipedia? Please, sir, can Wikipedia have more? <laughs> <laughs> Let's spell it out for the listeners at home. Uh, it was directed by Mike Vija. Is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? <laughs> I think that's Vajar. Is, is that a vagina? <laughs> what that would have been, that would have been an entirely different Star Trek the motion picture, wouldn't it? <laughs> but vagina. Vagina. <laughs> vagina six, whoa. I'm actually a little surprised there hasn't been one of those. <laughs> Star Trek Emmanuel. <laughs> I better not suggest that CBS All Access will do it. <laughs> oh dear. And it was written by Ira Stephen Burr and Hans Beamer. Wait, wait, wait. Oh wait, my God. wait! I think I just figured out what's going to happen in Discovery Season 3. <laughs> They're going to create V'ger. They're going to create the... spell it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's... That... Yeah, that that's that's where Voyager Six went, and uh, they're gonna be yeah, that's okay. And that is what led to the creation of that planet in Angel One. Hmm. There you go. It all ties together in a neat little bow, doesn't it? Anyway, enough smut. <laughs> Let us look at this episode of Deep Space Nine after. We have asked, is there any news in the Star Trek world? Well, as we as we record this, Patrick Stewart is celebrating his 80th birthday. Happy birthday, Patrick Stewart. We Peter. surrender. Harrison Ford is surrender. celebrating his 78th birthday. Happy birthday, Harrison Ford. Uh, they killed my wife. They get off my podcast. <laughs> uh, 
do we have any other news? I don't think we do, because as we record this, everyone's still in lockdown. Harrison Ford to do a podcast, and at the end of it, when he says goodbye to his guests, he just says, Get off my podcast. Get off my podcast. And at the beginning, he should say, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's the extent of the news. I do apologize if you tune into the show for timely related news events in the world of Star Trek, but today we don't have any. I can't imagine anybody tunes into the show for timely news events. Hopefully uh, yeah, they, I, they, they sign in for a pithy commentary. And timely related news. In other words, Leyte Golf has been liberated. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, this episode of Deep Space Nine had all the usual suspects in it and um, a large supporting cast of returnees, Louise Fletcher, Jeffrey Coombs, Penny Johnson, Gerald, Mark Alamo, Casey Biggs, J.G. Hertzler, Aaron Eisenberg, Barry Jenner, James Otis and Salom Jens were all back. The only notable new guest star was John Vickery as Roussot. Where do we know John Vickery from, Bill? Uh, Babylon 5, right? Absolutely. He was Nerun in Babylon 5. Recognized his voice instantly because he's always covered in shit tons of latex, poor bloke. Well, I mean, if you're into that, I mean. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, who are we to judge? Uh, the plot A Wharf and Esri return to the station, and the Breen attack Earth. Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge are damaged in the attack. Solbor reluctantly brings Wind the Book of Kost Amoyan, but much to her surprise, the pages of the book are blank. It isn't until Wind kills Solbor, spoilers, dude, that doesn't happen yet, after he finds out about the plan. Just imagine how long Memory Alpha would have taken to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't until Wind kills Solbor that he finds out about the plan to release the Powerettes that his blood makes the text visible. In the second battle of Chintoka against the Breen, Cardassians and Jem'Hadar, the Federation Chintaka, Alliance... Chintaka, man. Chintaka, Chintoka. That's Chintoka. It's, uh, every planet has a north. What can I say? The Federation Alliance suffers one of its worst defeats of the war in orbit of Chintoka. The USS Defiant is among the many ships destroyed by the new weapon unleashed by the Breen, an energy-dampening beam that renders weapons and drive systems powerless. Many escape pods eject from the Defiant and the other ships as the Dominion forces retake Chintoka. Wayun wishes to destroy the pods, but the female changeling allows them to be rescued, reasoning that the survivors' reports will have a demoralizing effect on their comrades. What could have been a Dominion juggernaut is halted when DS9 intercepts a message from within Cardassian boundaries. It is Demar who announces that Cardassia will revolt against the Dominion and initiates this action by destroying one of the Vorta cloning facilities, the one responsible for cloning Weyoun. While this would buy valuable time for the Federation Alliance to regroup, Sisko realizes they would have to contact Demar to achieve final victory. Ba, ba, ba! Uh, <laughs> I, I, there you go, that's what I was waiting for. I enjoyed this one. I loved it. Yeah, there's, there's lots of lots of great stuff in it. The destruction of the Defiant was was quite surprising. Lots of nice character beats, lots of action. It's about time we saw some action. And once again, the idea that Wynn and Ducat are making the Cardassian with two backs is disturbing. There's there's a lot of stuff in this one that I think uh, is, is worth talking about. Uh, but the first thing that caught my mind, the first thing I thought of, was how little we know about the Breen and how they feel just kind of like a plot device. Yeah. So what I did was I looked up Breen on Wikipedia and I figured I could read in a little bit of their background just so that we could be a little bit more familiar with them. So I was going to do that now, if that's good with you guys. Oh, I thought you already did that. Good luck with that. I've already been down that rabbit hole and refuse to go down again. I'm going to just take the dive down while you listen. Okay. Green are a fictional extraterrestrial species featured in Star Trek science fiction franchise. They were first mentioned in The Loss, a fourth season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which aired in 1990. Uh, references were made in Next Generation episodes, but they did not appear again until 1996, the fourth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode, Indiscretion. They played a significant role in the final story arc of the series in 1999 and then moving on to their history and culture. The Breen homeworld is called, very originally, Breen. 
According to the 1999 Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode, Till Death Do Us Part, and was said to be a frozen wasteland in indiscretion. However, in the 1999 episode, The Changing Face of Evil, it was stated by Wei Yun that it is, in fact, rather temperate. Among the Breen, pregnancy at a young age was a common occurrence, according to Elogium, a 1995 second season Star Trek Voyager episode that has not been established what is considered young in the Breen culture. The Breen have no blood. How the functions normally carried out by blood in their species are carried out in Breen physiology has not been revealed. Although the Breen diet is unknown, Lieutenant Commander Worf and Ezri Dax were given algae paste when they were prisoners of the Breen until death to us part. Historically, the Klingons were among the first to discover the consequences of underestimating the Breen, as revealed in Till Death to Us Part. Uh, during the Klingon se- Second Empire, Chancellor Mauga ordered an entire fleet of Klingon warships to invade and conquer the Breen homeworld. The fleet never returned and was never heard from again. The Romulans have a saying, never turn your back on a Breen. I'm just trying not to read everything here. The Breen established the isolated Breen Confederacy in the Alpha Quadrant, the quadrant of the Milky Way in which Earth is located, as well as the homeworlds of Ferengi, Cardassians, and portions of the Klingon Empire and Romulan Star Empire. The Breen established outposts near the Black Cluster. Oh, they're apparently various species. There's the Amonri, whose bodies have no blood and which require refrigeration in their suits to survive. Fenrisol, with pronounced snouts, which give shape to the traditional helmet. The Paklu, who have four-lobed brains and cannot, and that cannot be read by telepathic species. The Silwan, whose appearance is most human-like of the Breen. The Vironaut, a gray-skinned, multi-limbed species introduced in the sixth novel. And we're going to just leave it at that for now. But that just gives a little bit of background as to who the Breen are and why they are, I guess, a threat in this series. But, you know, they, they are presented as being significant as this is going on. And they keep, you know, mentioning that, uh, you know, they're, t- they're turning the tide of the battle. And in this episode, we get that they were uh, bold enough to attack Earth and successfully, you know, penetrate its defenses to a large degree. So there's a lot, you know, a lot going on with with that species, even though they are more or less a plot point. I like I like how they speak. I love <laughs> yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I love that everyone understands a single word. And it's I like love I that for some, yeah, it's like it doesn't, but the universal translator doesn't translate for us. No lines to remember. Yeah, so it's quite quite cool. That. I found the opening scene with the shot of San Francisco the most disturbing part of the whole episode. You know, it's like having seen this originally, it didn't bother me at all. But what transpired in the years after that, thinking about that bridge was standing there, you know, by that time for 500 years, and it's not flat. Being here, it kind of hit a little too close to home for me. I found it a little disturbing, but well done. So, Bill, does it make you think of a song? Uh, I left my Breen in San Francisco. I was thinking the Breen tore apart San Francisco. Just a thought. Huh. I'm just not, the, not used to you not coming up with the songs when they're... And the so thought obvious. is fading. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've, 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 I, I, I think the... Uh, Definitely the heavy-duty machinery in the background is finished, so I, I keep muting, unmuting, so I apologize. The Mutara Nebula. Mm. So now, uh, I am not a, a uh, history buff to speak of, and I'm wondering, the whole situation with Cardassia signing a, uh, a pact with the Dominion, and then being pretty much absorbed by them, and... Uh, and dominated by them. Is there a parallel in that to like World War II with Nazi yeah, Germany or with yeah, the USSR with Poland or anything like that? Nah, it's Italy. It has to be. I was thinking Italy with Nazi Germany, but I just was, again, I'm just not so on top of the historical steps that their alliance took. 
I can't think of anyone else like that, but that's the one that comes to mind. Poland was more, they were overrun, they were crushed. And you, you know, but yeah, when, when you hear about like the Nazi alliance, you know, you always hear Germany, Japan, and Italy. And Italy always seems like the weak sister in the equation, the way it's presented. So it does make sense that they kind of were like, yeah, yeah, we're part of things, right? And they're following around, you know, Hitler saying, yeah, you're going to let us do this, right? Right, Spike, right? Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, much like the, the, the Dominion has uh, treated Cardassia, that's, and, and Cardassia does end in, in a vowel. <laughs> I just, again, I'm not enough of a historical uh, student to know if that's kind of the way it developed, but it just seems like there would be a parallel there. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. That's the parallel. I concur. Uh, so some of my, you know, one of my favorite things, or a couple of my favorite things in this episode, uh, I really, I liked the way and I, I kind of got this Iris Stephen Bear had kind of said this and I'm, I, I agree that they combined very very big events the you know the war and the different battles and all of that with very very trivial events to great effect uh, you know the the gamesmanship that they're playing with the Alamo uh, Cisco getting upset about his peppers being burned uh, you know <laughs> You know, thing, things like that. So they, they combined, you know, big things with small things. But, you know, Cisco, Cisco just got married. And there is an adjustment period when you get married, if I remember, if I can remember way back when. You know, we, we, you know you're used to having things your way in your, in your space. And now you have to combine. And here, here she is trying to do something as a favor to him that's upsetting him. Wait, that stops? Oh, sorry. That's well, it stops me. once they subjugate you and start treating you like Cardassia. Right, and I'm still, <laughs> and I'm still fighting, man. Yay! <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. But you know that that seemed like a very realistic kind of thing. Uh, the other thing, the other comment that that kind of hit home was when they were talking about their Alamo stuff, and and they had to argue that it, you know that it wasn't a toy. Uh, <laughs> you know, as as guys who have uh, you know our uh, displays of various type of figures and whatever. I, I know I've been accused that, oh, you know, yeah, you have your toys over there. They're collectibles. They're not toys. <laughs> A highly detailed action figure. The dolls, damn it! <laughs> Shut up! I, I constantly have to defend that when she's not looking, I don't take them down and play with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't believe you. I think you play with it now. Not when the lights are on. Yeah. I, what I liked about this one is uh, it was focused on the bigger picture, but like you just said, there's lots of lice, nice, not lice, I hope nobody's <laughs> got lice, lots of nice little human moments like poor Ben's peppers, which saddened me. But I also liked, and this is not a dig against poor Ezra, I liked that this was an episode that she wasn't the focus of. Oh, finally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, again, I have nothing against Nicole de Boer. I have nothing against Esri Dax. It just feels like there have been bigger things going on this season that we have not focused on because they've wanted to focus on the new character. And it was nice to not have that this time. It was nice to see that other stuff's going down. And once again, I think it was it was the the Demar stuff that interested me this time. The fact that Demar's mad as hell and not going to take it anymore is a fascinating story development. I thought that was really interesting. I've really grown to like Casey Biggs. I think he's great. And and he gives a very inspirational speech to the uh, mm. to the Cardassians. Almost Picard worthy. Yeah. Almost uh, Captain America worthy. Da, 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 da. And then and then you combine that with the things that are going on with Ducat and Kai Wynn, which is also very earth shaking. I mean, there's a Ooh. lot of stuff there. Uh, you know, I, I love he walks in. I'll have my breakfast on the balcony so far. Yeah, <laughs> he's, I love he's her that. assistant. He's treating him like he's his butler. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really settling into his role, isn't he? It's uh, to me that was that was just a great line, perfectly delivered by him. Uh, mm. And then all you know, the way the scene progresses, uh, 
you know, I, I hope people have already watched this with Solbor eventually taking a knife from uh, Kai Win. But it's very like it develops slowly. She picks up the knife initially to defend herself, or at least it appears to defend herself against Dukat. And it turns around that she decides to kill him instead. He just ran into the knife. Yeah, that's yeah. It was it was an accident. And how many? I I tried to do a search for this on Google, and it was fruitless. I was trying to figure out how many like books or novels have plot points to where there's an unreadable book until some action is taken that allows you to read the text. Because I know I've seen that in other media before, but have I was you ever just read wondering. Read the like, motion before? <laughs> well, it was like uh, like in Agents of Shield, they had the dark hold where the pages were blank. And then when you like you would start to like it, it only gave you knowledge that you were looking for. Like it's supposed to be all the knowledge, you know, of the universe. Print. Yeah, exactly. But, Acme uh, disappearing ink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but my but I couldn't refine my search properly and came up with nothing. So I gave up. And just just to continue with with major events in this one episode. We get the destruction of the Defiant. Mm. It'll be back. It'll is be it back? Yeah. Is that? Is uh, I, did, I didn't. Uh, well, I don't know. I I'm assume it's sure probably it back in novelizations, but I don't it's think been it destroyed really before. Appearance. It got destroyed in. Um, it gets destroyed in. Uh, the, 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 I don't think uh, it got destroyed. It may have gotten damaged. I don't think it got. No, destroyed. it got blown up. Worf blew it up with. Um, Ramming speed. You're talking about first contact. Yeah. Yeah. No, he did not. Oh, they, they, they just abandoned they it. They salvaged it. Cause, oh, because oh, remember, he uh, Riker says uh, it's a tough, tough little ship. Little. Could have towed it back Wasn't to drive. Was the fine already destroyed once in the series? I don't think so. I don't think it's ever been completely destroyed. No. I think it's been damaged, but I don't think it's ever been destroyed. Hmm. I'll look it up. You look. I'll do that. So what what, we, what can we say about uh, Kai Wynn's total switch over to the power rates? She's like Anakin. Every, every step she's of the Anakin way, she's, but every step of the way, she's uh, appalled, and then says, huh, okay. She's appalled when she finds out that it's power rates, but then, you know, Dukat does a little sweet talk with her, you know, playing on her weaknesses, and she's like, oh, all right, I could deal with this. Then she finds out they're going to free the power rates. No, no, we can't do that until Dukat talks to her a little bit and says, all right, I guess we could do that. Then she finds out that he's Dukat, and he's like, well, we can't do that. You know, I'm going to stab you. Yeah, you know what? I'll stab Solbor instead. <laughs> Kill him, Adami. Kill him. See, because all the way through that conversation, you could tell where it was going to go. And I couldn't help but think Solbor should have gone, yes, I can totally see your point, Kai Wynn. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Yes, I'll be back soon. Left! And then gone and grasped her up. Yeah. But if he'd done that, we don't have the rest of the show, do we? So. Well, I, I think you could you can justify it by saying that he was very loyal to her and believed that once she knew the truth, she would take the right steps. He was wrong. He was exceptionally But that's what he thought. <laughs> he didn't think he had to turn her in because Ow. he thought she would take the appropriate steps. But, no. Alas, that'll be... Alas, poor Solbor. He obviously hasn't been watching the same show that we've been watching. <laughs> or, or shows, since it's so uh, cliché. I mean, that you know, Bill talked about the cliché of the book, but that turn is a little cliché as well. Mm. Well, he was played by James Otis. I heard he had a little little bitty town named after him. Otisburg? Miss Tessmack has got a place. Kai Wynn has a place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, her changes, her, her behavior, is it dictated by ego, lust for power, both? Because I, I see it more as ego than lust for power. I think she's she's fine not having the power necessarily as long as she gets the credit. I think it's all ego with her. See, I think it's power. I think she's power mad. Is there really a difference? Well, it's it's a it's a slight distinction, I think. 
like I, I think as long as she's getting credit for being, you know, the the Kai and 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 the leader of Bajor and and person who can, you know, uh, take them to into the future that they want, I think she can deal with the fact that Cisco is the uh, emissary. But once you know, like once she stops losing the credit for that, then she needs to get herself back in there. And once Ducat points out to her about, you know, like when he starts playing on her ego, well, you know, is it right that they picked uh, Cisco and not you? I, I don't know it's so much that she wanted more power as it is that she wanted more credit. She wanted everybody to love her as the savior of Bajor. What do you think? Uh, you make a good argument that she's Richard Nixon. That she wants them to love her, but they'll never love her. There's an old saying, only Nixon could go to Cardassia. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I think it's less ego and more power driven. She's never been happy to take the back seat to Ben. She's never really accepted why the prophets taught him and not to her. We know it's because she's not worthy. She can't understand that. And I think she wants the adulation that comes with the power. As we saw last time where her conversation with Kira was such that she had the opportunity to to give away the power in exchange for embracing her faith and chose not to do it. Ultimately, for Kai Wynn, the faith is merely the stepping stone to the power. And it's the power that she craves. Yes, but I still say that ego and power are so intermixed that you can't really differentiate fully. So I'm saying ego. Andy's saying power. Bill's saying ego and power. I don't see a difference in I do think there is, they're, they're both there. There's elements of both to it. I just, I just see ego as the more driving factor, and Andy thinks it's the power, and that's fine. It's just a different... Uh, different reading of her motivations which are sides evil no matter which point. way you look at it well let's look at it this way if everybody loved her would she be willing to step down and go away no well not go away i mean I she, she would compare need, need continuing love and continuing ego propping um if if, if they were to constantly sing songs to her that she saved Bejo by stepping down uh, and allowing the uh, the prophets to do what they needed to do or whatever. I think that might be fine as long as you know they were constantly praising her. So if she was a character like George Washington who was willing, my job is done. I'm laying down the the power and I'm retiring. See, I can't see her doing that. I see her more as someone who they'd have to drag her out of office. She'd die in office. Yeah. Mm. So she's more like FDR. <laughs> or in a bunker somewhere. With Charlie Cott. Maybe. You know, right. I, I do agree with you, Bill, that, that the two are linked. So it's, it's hard to separate them. And I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm really, I, I don't know if you can say one without the other but I'm just trying to look at which is the more motivating. Which one is, if she if she's only going to have one, which one is more important to her? Would she, well, Andy would she, said be, that would she, she craves... be happy with the power, but not the notoriety? Well, or I mean, the notoriety without the power? Because Andy said she craves ad, the adulation. To me, that's not, that's, a, that's ego, not yeah. power. I think if she, had, she, if likes she had a having, choice between... she likes being able to lord over people, Especially, you know, and like the way she has always interacted with Kira at a position of power over her, you know, saying, yes, my child, which in turn strokes your ego. So I, to me, they're both intermingled and they're not separate. I do think they're connected, but, but I guess like the, the best, basic way I could break it down is if you gave her the choice, she had to pick one or the other of having the power, but anonymously. Or, oh, I see what you're saying. Or having the praise, but no real power. She's just a figurehead. I think she'd take the latter. Oh yeah, yeah. Hmm. Of course, Dave beaten you into submission on this. <laughs> you haven't beaten me. Uh, I still think it's the power. I don't think she'd be content to be sitting in a back room, 
I've got the power. And there's a Star Trek link to that song. That song was used to advertise, I think it was British Telecom, and William Shatner and Jimmy Doohan were in the advert. I've got the power. Yeah. Anyway, that's nothing to do with this episode. All right, so me and Dave both think it's power. You're kind of in the fence, and Paul thinks it's ego. Once again, I stand all by myself. <laughs> all by myself. And if and that's what we're arguing about, that shows you what a great episode this was. We're, we're, mm-hmm. not, we're not arguing so much as just debating. Yeah, we we both we both think that Kai Wynn has got slightly different motivations to get where she's going, but to get where she's going ultimately doesn't really matter what her ultimate motivation is. Her drive is to be is to be the head of to the head of Bajor and to have the prophets communicate through her. That's her drive, that's her ambition, that's her goal. Yeah. That's I mean, ultimately it, it doesn't change any of her activities to know what her what's most important on her wish list. <laughs> what else what else we got here? Hmm. Anyone in particular you thought stood out beyond everyone beyond the rest I, of the cast as far as the acting I, went? I've already singled out Demar, who I think has mm-hmm. has the best scene in this episode. I also like the little cute asides between him and Wayun. Once again, when Wayun says, "Are you dressed?" and Demar's like, "What are you on about?" I said, "Well, you've not got a bottle in your hand." And already we're seeing that he's sobering up as part of not taking his crap anymore. I really liked the new guy whose name I've forgotten, but was Nerun on Babylon Five. Uh, and I like uh, I like the relationship. John Vickery. John Vickery, that's the guy. Uh, and Demar's speech at the end of the episode is actually really cool because it's so perfectly in character. In the he's he's, he's still a little bit bigoted towards the people that have occupied, but that's understandable in this case. Mm-hmm. And I do I love that speech at the end. It is it is very it is Kirkworthy. It is it is like a, a inspirational patriotic speech that brings the Cardassians out of the war. So it's 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 actually a very pivotal episode this one. And do you it kind of reads like it's the end of act 1. If the if the final arc is going to be three acts then this feels like it's the end of the first act of the war. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, the thing I would add is I liked how Wayun misread the whole thing up until Demar turned on them. Mm. Oh, you're finally coming around. You got your confidence back. We're going to win this war. Does it feel like the end of Act One or the end of Act Two? Because now we have all our players in place. No, no, because that would mean that the next six episodes are all Act Three, and I think there's got to be more twists and turns to come. Well, yeah, but the I'm, ca- I'm asking. The, the, you, the I'm, next... not, I'm not asking if it is the end of Act One. I'm asking you, or at the end of Act 2, I'm asking if it feels like the end of Act 2, because it almost feels like we're headed to the conclusion now. There may, no, I don't, know, I don't There's going to be more so. twists, but it almost feels like all the players are in place. You have, uh, you know, you have Wynn Win and Ducat in their spot. You have the Dominion and the Breen in their spot. You have Cardassia set to go with that. You know, it almost feels like now, now we're going to get the major collision between all these parties that are now in their spots. Uh, so to me, even though I understand it is the end of Act 1 and we still have another act to go, it feels to me like it's almost ready for the conclusion. And because there's going to be more chess moves before we get to the conclusion, I think that's clever writing uh, and yeah. clever planning on their part because they're bringing you up to the point where you feel like, okay, now we're going to get the, you know, the, the big collision, but wait 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 we still got more to do and i think that's i think that's kind of a really cool thing that they're doing uh and and again i'm not saying it is the end of act two i'm saying to me it almost feels like it is i hate to no, be see, the, I... the contradictory person no, you, don't. you love being that <laughs> no because no. every time we walk away and you say no paul you were wrong <laughs> No, I don't think you're wrong. I just, no, I don't agree with you. I don't think it, it does not feel like an act. 
It does not. That's a, there's a difference, though. It doesn't feel like an act two conclusion. This feels like all the things you're saying are the things that end at the end of Act One. This feels like the end of Fellowship of the Ring more than it feels like the end of the Two Towers. This feels like all your people are in position, yes, and that's been the big structural change to the status quo of the universe as we've been watching it going into the second act, which will be bringing the Cardassians in and do we trust the Cardassians to bring them in are there going to be things that you know the enemy of our enemy is our friend and all of that stuff it it definitely feels to me like the conclusion of the first act of a larger story it doesn't feel big enough to be the end of act two see that's the thing to me it does feel big uh, with 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 the destruction of, of the defiant with Cardassia turning sides uh it, it feels very big to me, and and I I see that as a positive. I'm not complaining in any way, and and I, I again I just think it's great writing that it feels so big, and yet there's still more to come. Yeah, as long as they don't lose the focus with it, and go down lots of different tangents. Well, we I mean we've seen that in stories so many times where the writers know how to build up, but then they don't know how to conclude uh, yes mm. i'm looking right at you stephen king <laughs> you know the the last thing i want is another appearance by the, the grand nagus or something you know what i mean i do not want that kind of hijinks comedy episode showing up in the middle of all this at this point that would derail the whole thing yeah i do not i don't even want to see him oh good luck with that wait mm. for it we don't see the grand nagus again do we Yes, we do. Oh, for fuck's sake. Not as a full episode, though. Yeah, we don't well, have a Ferengi episode, but we do have a Remember, somebody episode. has to become the new Negus, remember? Oh, right, yeah, okay. Yes. Why does anyway, if it's just a lot of dialogue, just go on. I'm fine. I know that my Negus will go on. I think it'll be in the uh, the Dogs of War. It's just a couple episodes away. No, okay. Cry havoc! And let loose the Dogs of War. I'd pay, pay real money if he'd shut up. <laughs> you, you mean me, not a... <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so what else we got? Uh... Worf and Ezri seem to have settled into being old chums. Which I quite, you're a good friend, Worf, I know. <laughs> they couldn't have realized that six episodes ago, could they not? They're, they're a little heavy-handed with the Bashir love, though. Yeah, well, now they've made that decision, yeah. And I, and I did like Wolf's teasy. Plays with toys. But even, even and, you know, the way Bashir acts now, it's like, you know, she realized that she cares for him, and he realized it at the same time. Yeah, how sweet was that? And, not and, and I guess I really don't want to see... You know, I don't, I don't need an episode like, you know where they go to Vix and realize that they're in love. So it's better better that you just move that one along quickly. So I was just looking at Memory Alpha real quick. Uh, so it says the first four episodes of the final chapter, Penumbra to Death to His Part, Strange Bedfellows, and The Changing Face of, Face of Evil had all been written concurrently. And as such, this episode represents the finale of the first block of the arc. Yeah, so that, no, uh, Andy's right. I'm just saying no, no, it I'm felt just, to yeah, me just, like it's ready for the conclusion, even though it's not. Just trying to dig at you, Paul. That's fine. I'm used to being it. wrong. What? I can't put. Dave, mark the tape. <laughs> Actually, I'm not wrong, because my Save opinion that. is it felt like it's ready for the conclusion, and my opinion <laughs> remains that way. <laughs> well, I understand that we are ready for the conclusion, because the show's going to end, so... No, I understand that it's the end of Act 1, but it, it had a feeling to me like it, it was even further along than that. That's my point. Ah! Bah! We, we, we are definitely bah. getting into trivialities here, though, in our debates. Splitting hairs, Doc. Split a hair? <laughs> it's so sharp it could split a hair. Uh, what else we got? What do we got? Come on, moving along. Alamarine? I guess we're ready to get it, ready to rate it then. Uh, I'm going for another four. I think this was this was solid. This one, this was a really nice 
chapter conclusion to uh, to the first arc of the story. I really enjoyed it. I, I'd completely forgotten that the Defiant gets destroyed. I remember like the broad strokes of Kai Wynn and her storyline with with uh, with Ducat, but I don't remember where any of it goes. I'd completely forgotten all the stuff about Demar. So all of this is like watching it again for the first time. And uh, it's it's exceptionally good. This is a great episode. Four stars. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that at four point five because I felt I rated the last one four four point five and I feel this one's every bit its equal. So I'm gonna continue with that. Uh, can say uh, I mean they're all blurring together. So uh, and I think I gave it four and a half last time as well. Um. Yeah, things haven't kicked down any. I mean, I mean, I don't think the quality has gone down. Uh, so I'm gonna go four and a half uh, battles of Shintaka for my uh, for my rating. I don't know how you have half a battle, although Picard would. He would just come in and surrender. So. <laughs> I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was well done. It moved. It touched all the right buttons. And for that reason, I gave it a four and a half as well. So this is kind of the reverse of Move Along Home, where it, it was rated, I think, a one by Sean and I, and Andy rated it a, four, a 1.5, so we made him the great defender of it. So this one, the three of us rated a 4.5, and Andy gave it a four, so Andy hates this one. <laughs> I did, yeah, I, I, I hated it, because that's how the internet works. Yes. You're all wrong. Release the Snyder Cut. Everyone involved with that film is a saint, except for Joss Whedon and whoever it was who decided to recut it. They're all the devil and they can burn in hell. God damn it. Everything's black and white. There is no subtext or subtlety. I hated this one. I'm going uh, to start an internet movement. Re- release the Leyland Cut. <laughs> I don't know anyone wants that. So we we all that's that's our ratings of it. But what do you think Blaine had to say? Well, in honor of uh, Gold Ducat not having to masquerade as uh, Bajoran farmer anymore, uh, I, I will do the, today's song. Will be uh, uh, let me see, masquerade. What does Blaine say? What does he say? Is he gonna dance around like Gold Ducat? Uh, I got nothing. To say. Is that uh, is that from Phantom of the Opera? Yes. Yes. I'm impressed with myself that I recognized it. Or you have to turn in your man card, one or the other. But I love <laughs> Phantom of the Maybe Opera. Maybe both. So. I for one enjoy Phantom of the Opera and Revel and Sings. If you don't like it, too bad. I also like Xanadu and Long Walks on the Beach. <laughs> <laughs> and Pina Colada. <laughs> is Pina Colada? Huh? Who's Tina Colada? <laughs> the sister to Pina. Excellent. <laughs> well, isn't the twins. Pina, Pina isn't, and Tina. Isn't Pina short for Josephine in Italian? I don't know. I'm not Italian. I, I think you're right. Although I did take a DNA test, so uh, we'll see what comes back. What What am I? Josephine and Christina Colada. So Blaine says What does Blaine say? If you like what Blaine says If you like reading emails at midnight So Blaine says Hi guys Kai Wynn falls even further with Ducat's help I'm glad we're getting so much Ducat near the end of this series And I'm sure Mark Alemo was glad that his morning makeup calls could get later in the day I can't imagine the Bajoran nose appliance takes anywhere anywhere close to the same amount of time to apply as the Cardassian makeup. Even more so, I think I have a better understanding of why the Breen were chosen to join the Dominion. We don't know them, and we don't know what to expect from them. Their weapon technology can be a surprise, and the destruction of the Defiant is a huge moment. Finally, make note of the fact that Travis was lost. This is Deep Space Nine... They try to come back to everything. Some of the past references, like the captain with the transparent skull, were not meant to be ongoing plot points when written and were just brought back later. But this close to the end of the series, nothing is an accident. And we're really getting some great stuff from Damar. Speaking of long-term planning, Damar is on that list. He first appeared in Season 4, Episode 13, 
and Casey Biggs was asked to stay available because they had big plans for DeMar. He ultimately had 23 appearances, with one in Season 4, two in Season 5, the premiere and finale, and then the rest were spread through Seasons 6 and 7. This show may not have been planned in the same level of detail as some other shows, but it's definitely had more planning than any other Trek show I've seen, though Enterprise may have reached this level had it lasted longer. Blaine. Yeah, I I don't recall what the ultimate return to the fact that Travis was lost is. I I have no recollection of where that goes, so I have no comments. But yes, the planning on, on the show is tremendous. Who's Travis? Am I drawing a blank? Colonel Travis. Davy Crockett. Oh, 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 okay. Duh. Never mind. Never mind. So, that's it from Blaine, and that's it for this episode. Uh, does anybody want to read any email? We know that Andy doesn't. Contractually, I'm not allowed to. I'm not logged in. Come on, I'm not logged in is a worse excuse than I'm contractually unavailable that to do that. I don't That's remember the thing, and I'd have to change my whole Gmail setup. Very <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> this, the first email is from <laughs> Gus Shaw. Oh, we have you a know, there's another guy on this man baby on the show. There's another guy on this program, and he hasn't said a word, so what's his excuse? I'm still an intern. I haven't gotten access to the email yet. Hang on. We're going to remedy this right now. All right, I'll read it. All right, knock yourself out. This is from Gus Shaw. Salutations and prodigious profiteers. As I continue my journey through the wonderful epic saga of Deep Space Nine, it is entire in its entirety including the low points of Move Along Home, The Storyteller, etc., I am continually grateful for your dedication in producing this companion podcast. Thank you very much for your kind words. We are dedicated. That's it? That's all there is. No, there isn't. There's a lot more than that. (laughs) That's all that I got. Wait a minute. I continue reading. Following up the Netflix episodes with your commentary and banter allows me the illusion of sharing my love for DS9 with loyal friends and sharing the experience, even though I will likely never meet any of you in person, seems to enhance the journey. It has been a few years since I actually sat down to watch any of the Star Trek iterations. There are a couple of matters related to holograms and replicators that have, uh, that have always puzzled me. Uh, I didn't have many Trek-watching friends growing up, so I never had much of an opportunity to debate these concepts. I was hoping you don't mind if I trouble you for your opinions. I enjoyed the discussion after the episode Shadowplay. However, you were so focused on the ethics of projecting living beings, then shutting them off, that you missed the more nuanced question, will a holographic cheeseburger raise your cholesterol? (laughs) That's like your android's dream of electric sheep. Oh, yeah, so if you eat something on the holodeck and it then you leave... It has no calories because it's not real. Yeah, but when you leave the holodeck, it disappears and you're hungry again. Yeah, so do you... You're eating energy. Actually eat it. You're eating energy and it's going into your body. That can't be good. Or, no. or wait a minute, or does it just delete it? Like, how does that work? Uh, the minute that you take a bite of it, the computer removes it so you don't actually eat it. So of course, brings to mind the the story from Breaking Bad. That doesn't that doesn't explain how you would taste it, then, does it? No, mm. like you, that would be like if you're in hell, you would be constantly eating and never get satisfied. Mm. You like donuts? Like, Eat like them that, all. Like, like, that, <laughs> like the episode of uh, oh yeah, you're talking Futurama or no? no that's sentence. where Homer goes to yeah. <laughs> and he's just like comp comp. No, but there was the uh, there was the, when they relaunched the Twilight Zone. There was one where Elliot Gould was a uh, food critic, and he kept eating food, and he was hungry. Like he went to this, like he wrote a bad review for a Chinese restaurant, and then he went to hell. Well, he went back to the restaurant, and he's like, "Oh, I'm so hungry," and he and oh, why why can't I why, why why am I hungry? And he opens up one of the fortune cookies, and I think it says, "You're in hell." So, do, do you remember the fan fiction story from Breaking Bad? I haven't got that far. I'm still like stuck in season one. My wife doesn't seem to want to watch it with me because I promised her I wouldn't watch ahead. 
So I think I'm the the last one I'm at is where the bathtub falls through the, through the ceiling. Okay, that's towards the beginning. Okay, then I won't ruin it. Okay. Speaking of Twilight Zone, have you watched any of the new ones? Uh, no, I have not had a chance. The last episode of the first season is really good. I will say no more. Okay. Anyway, back to Gus's back, email. Back to cheeseburgers. <laughs> if I go to Holodeck and ate a projected thick, juicy cheeseburger with all the delicious bad from my health fixings, when I leave the Holodeck or whatever area the projector can affect, will all the chewed up bits of burger in my digestive system disappear? Hmm. I don't see how it could possibly enter your digestive system. I, yeah, I think it just like like you're saying, Andy, it just disappears. It's deleted from the program as you you. I think maybe you're already like you wouldn't go to the holodeck for to eat. I think you're probably already aware that the food isn't real and it will be quote unquote deleted properly. So, so why those, why did they all go there for a drink then? When do they go to the holodeck for a drink? They go to Vic. Every, every time they go to Vic. Oh my God, you're right. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait. Unless, Unless they actually use the replicators and those are actually real on the holodeck and the you, – you know what I'm saying? Wait. In the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Wesley falls in the water and he comes out of the holodeck and Picard's looking at him as he's dripping all over the deck. Uh-huh. He's like, oh, I guess I better clean this up. I bet, I guess you should. Yeah, and there's that other episode of Next Gen as well where he throws a snowball yes. out of the deck and it hits somebody. Oh, yeah, you're right. But because yes. in The Big Goodbye, they established that Cyrus Redblock can walk out of the holodeck, but the further away he gets from the holodeck, he starts disintegrating. So the implication there is that it lives outside of the holodeck for a certain amount of time. It's like a Wi-Fi signal. Mm. I don't want to so make light it, of eating disorders, but wouldn't it be physically similar to bulimia if you, you're eating, which means your stomach is going to start digestive juices going because you've yep. simulated eating, but then no food gets down to your stomach. So then I think, I don't really understand it, but I think the biggest problem with bulimia is that your those digestive juices start like deteriorating your stomach. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't well, that's why it, I wouldn't it be the, kind of the same thing to simulate eating, but then not have any kind of food for the for your stomach to break down? Right, but I that's why I think it could be in order to not have that health risk, it would be a combination of actually replicating live things like drinks and food to in order to actually sate your hunger or you know get drunk or whatever. I agree. I think it's real food. Yeah. Well, but otherwise it would be the perfect solution and you'd have no fat people because if you had an eating problem that you eat too much, you just eat fake food and satisfy your desire to have the food but not have any of it cause you not to have get any fat. consequences. Mm. So, yeah, I mean it's probably we're probably delving too deeply into this, but thank you for starting the conversation on it, Gus. Well, the next sentence is, does Star Trek offer a future where I can savor the enjoyable taste of junk food without suffering the harmful consequences to my health? Yes. <laughs> Unless yeah, that's it's best. giving you other horrible consequences, as we it just It seems discussed. to be we've basically decided that that is the truth. But I, I, I think, obviously, the, the holodeck should be for purely recreational purposes, and you shouldn't take somebody there for a date and a meal. That seems like this is a good rule of thumb. You have your meal at Quark's, and then you go to the holodeck for your desserts, if you're looking. Or if you're on the Orville, well, we all know what happened on the Orville, those of us that have seen it. (laughs) Yeah. The the ship got a virus, that's all we're going to say. Yep. Uh, The email continues. I love the development of the Ferengi that DS9 includes... However, in a civilization with replicator technology as readily available as a as is often portrayed, why does anyone do business with them? Why buy a cargo hold of yamak sauce when you could just replicate the exact amount of sauce you need at any one time? So, it, yeah, yeah. There's, there are problems with the replicator, aren't there? Yeah, because when we get to Voyager. Like, because you think, all oh, right, the replicator just takes one form of matter and turns it into another. Well, couldn't you just, like, 
go buy a space nebula and suck up a bunch of gas and store it and then use that mm. for your replica you know you're going to turn that into food later but i don't think it i mean that's I, because they ration the because re- if it could turn it out of of anything then i don't know what say you you, never, you would never run out of anything yeah. ron moore said the worst thing they created in the next generation was the replicator <laughs> because ideally if a part breaks you can just replicate that part. So there is no need for a ship to ever run out of anything or for anything to break or anything at all. They, they would never want for anything at all because they can just replicate it. So there's no drama whatsoever with a replicator. But we've actually seen that. Although, if you don't have, like, okay, so what? At one point, they had to go to the other space station... The other Cardassian station, Tarok, to get the parts they needed. But I believe that's because yeah, but they were Cardassian replicator. But maybe there's a size limitation on the rep. Like you'd have to have some huge industrial. Like you couldn't replicate a '57 Chevy unless you had a platform big enough and the right specifications and plans. Yeah, but you could replicate all the parts to make a '57 Chevy. Yeah, you could not, not. I mean, it, well, you, but you'd still have to have something big enough to replicate, like the fenders and the hood. You couldn't do that in pieces. Like maybe there's because we've heard things, quote unquote, or at least in games and other things, industrial replicators. So I would imagine it's just a giant replicator to re, to reproduce giant parts. Well, hell, in that matter, why couldn't they just replicate ships? Yeah, why can't well, they just replicate that, the Defiance? That's that's uh, a whole plot point. I'm reading Picard. The prequel to the series, and that's the reason oh, really? they build they build the synths because there's certain tech, very high tech parts that you can't replicate. It has to be uh, built by hand, which makes no sense. Yeah, it would make sense if they limited limited replicators to only being able to reproduce simple objects. Yes, like water well, or yeah. food or whatever, but they can't do complex mechanics they couldn't do a watch right yeah but if you can create something out of nothing you're telling me if it gets a little complex you can't do it you're creating something out of nothing you're already making a monumental leap to to quote to quote kyle reese i didn't build the thing (laughs) where am i Plus, plus if they're changing matter where do you think the toilets go on deep space nine Oh, yeah! You're wearing shit. I'm eating shit. Yeah. Uh, as much as I'm getting back to the email, as much as I enjoyed the subplot with Jake and Nog trading a shipment of self-stealing stem bolts, wouldn't it be more efficient to replicate a self-stealing stem bolt than to order one? Mm. The widespread use of replicators should have drastically altered merchant trade throughout the Federation. Well, yeah, but the Ferengi really don't fully trade with the Federation anyway. It's more on the outer, well, I don't want to say outer rim, but, you know, because they have a a currency-based uh, economy with the Ferengi and other other races. I mean, the Federation is the one that don't use money. Which is, which is, we've proven many, many times. We're not going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems there would be less needed to transport and sell in products as much as the raw elements the replicators need to reproduce everything they make it makes me wonder what garrick's business would be if trade was accurately depicted with such widespread replicator usage i think a barbershop would be the ideal front if tailoring wasn't a sensible option I think the thing with Garrett, you can always argue people will always want handmade tailored clothing. There's a specialty yes. to that. Oh, this is complicated. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. for people like for people like us, this kills the antiques business. If I can just go and replicate a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15, that's a whole slew of antique people out the way, isn't it? Whereas I think if you want a Tom Ford suit, you're going to want a, a tailor-made Tom Ford suit. I mean, if, if Garrick can tailor-make your clothes, I think there's always going to be specialty people who require that level of attention to detail that you can't get from the replicators. So I think Garrick would be okay. I, yeah, um, 
plus being a tailor is less uh I think people would talk to him as a tailor more than as a barber because what Bajoran is going to go to a Cardassian for a haircut to shave? There is, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Wait, you're going to come out with a razor to pair of scissors? Ah, no, I'm out. Uh, da, 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 da. It, okay, uh, I think a barbershop would be ideal front if tailoring wasn't a sensible option. It's a service that would make all sense to still be required by society, and the tradition of gossiping would be excellent sources for both acquiring information and spreading misinformation, which fits nicely into Garrick's M.O. Yeah, but we just discussed why the Bajorans may, he might get other races, but not going to have a lot of Bajoran return customers. Anyway, just some ideas that have been rattling around inside my head that I thought needed to be let out. I have no problem ignoring these issues for the enjoyment of a good Star Trek episode. I would be interested to hear your take. <laughs> it's when a I'm... good job we have no problem ignoring them, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I would be interested to hear your take when I finally catch up to your current productions in several months. Well, uh, cheers, Gus. Well, we'll see you in the future, Gus. <laughs> Is there another email you'd like me to read? That, that was no, that was a great email. I, I enjoyed that one because I think we've took the piss out of the um, the replicators on any number of occasions. I think that episode you alluded to, Bill, the um, the Terret Noir other one, um, we were like, why could they not just replicate what they needed? Why have they gone all the way to this other station? What's all that about? And well, I think maybe the size, but that wouldn't make sense either because they went there on a runabout. You tell me, don't they don't have a big enough rep, replicator? Like, whatever they took, they could put on the runabout and bring back. Maybe they, they should have established back. early doors that Cardassians don't have replication technology, and for whatever reason, Federation replicator technology doesn't speak to Cardassian infrastructure, and therefore they've never been able to have replicators. And yeah. that would have solved all the problems. Mm -hmm. Is that it? So Gus also sent an email on... June 22nd. What was the date of that first one? That I don't June know. 20th. Oh, actually, this one is before that one. I apologize that we're reading them out of order. Uh, and he must have sent another one prior to that. Uh, oh, here we go. He did send one on June 20th. Uh, and it said, Salutations, Profound Profiteers. Thank you very much for this enjoyable DS9 podcast. I find it an amusing companion to my journey through the series. I am especially appreciative of the crucial Morn sightings. I am still working my way through season two of the show and am four years behind your current release schedule. However, there is a minor <laughs> issue that has been bothering me. After 40 episodes, none of your other listeners up to that point had pointed it out. As much as I like your opening sequence, which strings together several sound bites from different characters in the show, I am disappointed that you completely forgot Odo. I fully admit that I am biased in this situation. Odo is my absolute most favoritist character in all of the Star Trek franchise. Uh, but if you're going to include Quark, you need Odo. They belong together like part of a set, like having Asuka without Felix, Ernie without Bert, Sam without Ralph. If you ever find a way to slingshot your podcast around the sun at warp speed, feel free to alter the timeline by splicing Odo into the opening sequence. While you're tinkering with the timeline, you may also want to include Garrick describing himself as a simple tailor. Most of the best non-Odo-centric episodes involve the station's favorite rogue outcast spy. Cheers, Gus. And he puts a footnote, if you don't get the reference, Sam and Ralph were the sheepdog and coyote from the Bugs Bunny I cartoons. It. I don't remember which was which. I remember they would greet each other We're at the time clock at the beginning of the skit. Hello, Ralph. Good morning, Sam. But before shutting, sitting down to guard the flock or sulking around to steal it. Usually just the coyote was about to finally catch a sheep. The whistle would blow, ending the shift, and they would pass each other as they clocked out for the day. Goodbye, Sam. Have a good evening, Ralph. Uh, you might want to listen to our Looney Tunes episode of, uh, of of Back to the Bins for a little bit more on that one, Gus. But he followed that up with a quick email two days later saying, My sincere apologies, prodigious profiteers. It appears that the very next episode I listened to, following my previous email, included a different introductory sequence. I therefore withdraw my previous complaint. Thank you very much for addressing my feedback before I even sent it. This, that is the hazard of responding from so far back in the archives. Live long and prosper, Gus. Gus, I'm glad you're you're listening through our archives and enjoying it. I hope that uh, you know that all is well. Yes, thank you, Gus. 
So I guess that's it for this time. What are we doing next time? Next time! Carol Marcus. It never rains, but it pours. Come, come, Doctor. You should appreciate the danger of reopening old wounds. In the name of victory. Kira Nerys has certain skills she's willing to teach us. Fierce adversaries unite. Our enemy is the Dominion, and not each other. For the sake of survival. Odo's life is at stake! A deadly secret must be exposed. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? In the pursuit of power. Nothing is sacred on the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I think I'm going to have my breakfast out on the balcony. (laughs) Goodbye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Get off my podcast. Listen to The Prophets at Deep Space Nine Podcast is a Two True Freaks presentation. It is hosted by Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright CBS and Paramount Entertainment. If you like to buy stuff from Amazon, and who doesn't, why not drop by the 2TrueFreaks.com website, where if you click the little link that we have there, it will take you straight through that site, and whilst it won't cost you any extra, we'll put a few shekels in our tip jar, which helps create content like this. We very much hope you enjoyed listening to The Prophets. Every episode is dedicated to the memory of our pal, Sean Engel. Uh, Read it from memory alpha. We we that way no. you know. <laughs> yes, the rest of us will go take a nap while you're reading. <laughs> Mem- memory alpha synopsis is uh, and then he walked into the room, and whilst walking into the room, he took five paces to the left. On his right was a Breen. On his left was Chief O'Brien. He turned to Chief O'Brien, played by Colmini, and said, "Fuck you." The end. <laughs>